So, the other day, I was trying to set this show up on Twitter. You may have heard of it. And I was there for about 15 minutes, and then I realized I was walking front teeth first into oncoming traffic. Because that's what being on Twitter makes you do. Clearly. It's just a place for people who hate themselves. So we will not be on Twitter. So instead, send your hate mail to us on Facebook. And if you are on Twitter, get help. We're all worried about you. This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones. The show where a man with issues takes issues with the issues and tries to come up with solutions for today's problems and with your help, hopefully, become an incubator of great ideas. Today we're talking about the middle class and ways to get rich and I'm covering corruption in politics. And when I talk about politics, I always try and keep it as simple and interesting as possible for people who don't really follow this stuff. I said we would return once we hit 100 likes on Facebook and you folks came through. I appreciate it. But what I appreciate even more is what I, when I was looking through the analytics for the show, well, the past month I saw that the top two countries that listened to the show was United States and number two was the Philippines. Apparently, there's a couple of people from there who enjoy the show. To the handful of people listening to this in the Philippines, message me on Facebook or leave a message where you can. I'll solve any problems you want. I'm serious. If you want military secrets, I'll get them. I'll commit treason. I'll do anything for my fan base in the Philippines. I love you guys. All right. Let's get rich, people. We're focusing on ways to get the middle class to the upper class. And through the research I've done, it looks like there are six ways to get there. And to the crowd, crowd of people in the Philippines listening, I hope this can work for you too. Number one, marry rich. I don't know a rich or a Richard for that matter. But if you are a young lady or maybe a curious man, marry a gentleman named Rich. Somehow this will make you wealthy. At least that's how I read it. Number two, win the lottery. A man once told me while contemplating whether he should gamble his rent money away, he said, screw it. I can always make more money. Then quickly, as if he was doing it on purpose, he lost all his rent money. It turns out, though, it wasn't his rent money, but it was money for his insolent treatment. He currently has one foot. Oh, Tommy, you one-footed bastard. You'll never learn. Number three, investing. Stock markets, 401ks, stocks, bonds, IRA, NRA, you get the idea. I would have to say this option is the best option for those of you, those of you who suck with money. Find a broker, throw some money at him or her, and hope to hell you get lucky and make enough to retire on. And this is obviously a good option if you are good with money. With that being said, let's not have any confusion as to who sucks with money. If you're good, you're good. If you're in debt, you know, from school or otherwise, then you have different goals and, you know, agendas that you're working on. But if you suck with money, it's going to be an issue for you until you marry rich, win the lottery, or work on this character flaw. So let's do a quick test to see if you suck. You go to work one day, and the owner says to all the employees, Good news! Everyone's getting a $1,000 bonus. Do you, A, say to yourself, I work hard all year. I deserve to spend this money any way I want. Or, B, I work hard all year. I deserve to spend 20% any way I want. If you answered A, you suck. And now you have two options. Number one, realize it's bad. Number two, do something good. The best advice, advice I've seen is try and budget $250 a month for four months, then use that money to start investing. What that's going to do is force you to create a budget and to throw out any non-essential spending. I actually went through my monthly spending a little bit ago. My cable bill is probably around $130 a month. I thought about it. I probably watch six to eight hours of TV a month. 
So I'm obviously doing something wrong. So did I get rid of cable? Well, no. What if there's something I want to watch? And again, I work hard all year. I deserve to watch whatever I want. So if you do suck with money, investing in stocks and bonds might be the way to go. There's a thing called the internet. Try it out, do some research, and figure out what works for you. And meanwhile, save that money. And in general, everyone should know a little bit about this stuff, regardless of how you are with money. It's going to help you down the line. Number four, buy property. This is pretty self-explanatory, but I'll try and uh, throw you a different perspective. In your more pricey areas, you're looking at paying about $1,800 a month just to rent a two-bedroom apartment. If you take a look at condos, which are popping up everywhere, you can find a good one for under, say, $300K. That's a little over $10,000 down, though. But you're more than likely paying less on a mortgage than you are on a rental. And also, you own it. You're not just tossing money away renting. You're investing in something that could be worth something closer to retirement. There's also flipping houses. If you're handy, you can try and find a fixer-upper. Live there while you rehab the place, sell, and move on to a new place. Then repeat the process for about 10 to 15 years. Or just buy lottery tickets. It's way easier. Let me throw you another perspective. When it comes to buying property, and this is based on what someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, they were, they were talking about how their mom and dad bought a house back in the 70s for $50,000 and talking about how lucky they were to have, have houses back then so cheap. Now, my thought was, what the hell are you talking about? Look at it this way. The national average for a house today is $278,000. $50,000 in the 70s is the equivalent to $330,000 in 2019. So there's nothing cheap about 50K in the 70s. Now, the argument you might have against this is the nearest home in the price range of 278K is about an hour from where you work and all the well-paying jobs. And your parents might have bought a house for 50K back in the day, and today it's worth 800,000 or even a million. Good point. But that area wasn't uh, as developed as it is today. There's a good chance they had to travel an hour to get to their work, barefoot, walking uphill in the burning rain as was the weather in those times. I mean, hell, there's an excellent chance when your family bought their house, there weren't any, any roads. They just drove through the woods without GPS and on occasion got to work safely. This all lends itself to the millennial segment I did in episode three, which you can check out. And if you don't want to listen to that episode or any episode, and I completely understand, you can also check us out on the YouTube channel where we cut up the episodes into segments. So you can listen to it there. Number five, go to college or a trade school. Man, I cannot wait to do an episode on education, so I'll keep this short. Get a degree that will land you a job that pays well. One of the most popular degrees for women to get is an elementary education degree to become a teacher. For men, one of the top 10 is general philosophy. For teachers, it costs, on average, about $30,000 for college. The average annual salary is about thirty-eight dollars For general psychology, it costs about $50,000 to get a degree. The average salary, $80,000. So you're probably thinking general psychology degree would be the best way to go because you have a better chance of paying off your debt and be on your way to saving money. No, this is not a good idea. What you got to understand is you probably went to a public school where they didn't teach you a single thing about money, yet the colleges have no problem letting you get an overpriced degree that the bank has no problem working with them to make sure you get that loan that will be damn near impossible to pay off knowing full well you have no idea what you're signing up for because you were never taught anything about, public, about money in public school. I believe the legal term is called under duress. So, sue your school, sue your bank, sue everybody, and you'll be on the fast track to millions.
Number six, last one, start a business. Ask yourself, is there anything you're good at? Anything you think you're the best in? And if not, go back to gambling. But if you do have some sort of skill, figure out how to make some money off it. Try to grow it. Start an online business. It's cheap these days, you know, depending on your, your uh, skill set. You offer online training courses for whatever you're good at. Or you can start a podcast, a YouTube channel, an online shirt business. A lot of people have hundreds or even thousands of friends through social platforms. Use them. Exploit their time and money for your personal gain. Remember, they're your friends. They trust you. And if they don't check out your podcast, call them out on your show, Jimmy, and shame them into listening. Listen, me saying start a business is, pretty broad, is a pretty broad statement. All I can really say is plan, 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 grow some balls or boobs, and do it. In closing, to all this nonsense, when it comes to money, there really are only two right things you can do. Save and invest. But there is an infinite number of ways to do the wrong things with money. But, it's been said before, if you are the problem, you are the solution. Alright, before we get to our next segment, we got to play you a promo for our new show we're working on, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Coming this fall, from the producers of Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, comes a new show, Solving Crime and Starting New Ones, with me, O.J. Simpson. Now, I know a lot of you guys are saying, hey, isn't that the guy who ran for 12,000 yards in his career and never had a fumble? How's that man going to drop a leather glove next to the rose bushes at 10.45 p.m. in 1994? Because it didn't happen, folks. So listen to my podcast, Solving Crimes. And start new ones. Coming this fall. I was Norberg. Yep, OJ Simpson jokes. We're not out of touch. Alright, the big topic of uh, today is corruption in politics. This is sort of a continuation of money in politics, a segment we did in our first episode. So, we're going to talk about why it's important, how we got here, and what we can do about it. We'll start off with a question. Does the government represent the people? A Princeton University study that used 20 years of data found that the answer is not really. This study showed that if a federal law had zero, and I mean zero support from the American people, its chances of becoming law is 30%. If a federal law with 100% support, and I mean everyone wants this law to pass, there is a 30% chance it could pass. But if you're a special, special uh, interest group or have corporate lobbyists, it becomes 100% chance for the things they want, 0% chance for the laws they don't like. That's simply They simply do not have our interest in mind. So, what is a lobbyist? It's a person who represents a company or a union to persuade members of the government to push for laws or policies that benefit their group. Sounds like bribery to me and you, but we're leaving out a crucial fact. Most politicians really don't know much overall. For example... If a senator wanted to push a bill for cleaner air, but there's a good chance he or she doesn't know anything about air or how to clean it. So, a lobbyist will come in from an environmental group. They'll come in, they'll explain the ins and outs, show them the positives and negative effects on their business, and a lot of times, write up the bills themselves that will eventually become law. For those of you who like the, like the environment, this may not sound all that bad, until I replace the word environmental group with ExxonMobil group. Now, lobbyists do have a role to play. 
even if, even if you think of the smartest politician out there, there's a good chance they don't know shit about the automotive industry, for example. So not all lobbyists are bad. And then you learn about this guy, Jack Abramoff, who spent six years in prison for tax evasion, bribery, fraud, you know, the usual stuff. He's also referred to as a super lobbyist. And he wrote a book once, once he got out of uh, prison, called Capital Punishment, which gives some really good insight. Now, what some lobbyists do is meet with a member of Congress to pass a law that favors their group. Typically, they offer to put out a fundraiser for this member of Congress. And, as I mentioned before in episode one, politicians spend an average of 70% of their time raising money for the next campaign. A fundraiser put together by a rich lobbyist and his rich friends certainly saves a lot of effort. And all this is legal. The next thing a lobbyist might do to butter up a politician is offer them a job when they're ready to leave politics, or ready to retire. Which is pretty enticing when you see someone with a brand new suit, brand new car, the watch, all that, and offers a seven-figure-a-year job to a politician who's making a low six-figure salary, which is nothing to sneeze at, but a hundred grand isn't a million. Out of the 15,000 registered lobbyists, a majority of, of them are former politicians. This is what's called the revolving door in politics. And again, completely legal. Also, lobbyists will pay writers or bloggers to write opinion pieces that support their cause or tear down ideas that go against their interest. Which brings up the question of who do you trust when you're seeking information? So I've explained to you the good, the bad, and how it's hurting the American people. So what can we do about the lobbyists and end corruption? Should we legalize murder? No? Okay, I'll try again next week. Well, let's look at this realistically. Are politicians going to vote against their best interests? No, they're not gonna vote against the revolving door. And as far as fundraising, Listen, another way to look at this would be, what if there's a congressman who supports teachers' unions, and in return the union wants to put together a fundraiser to support someone who supports them? Should that be allowed? Your opinion might differ depending on your feelings towards unions. So when it comes to fundraising, fundraising either all of it's okay or none of it's okay. But you've got to pick one. I believe the two key things we the people need to pay attention to is ending the revolving door, which we'll get to in a minute, and a push for term limits. For those of you who don't know, all the members of the House, that's 435 politicians, have elections every two years, which explains why they spend so much time raising money. For the 100 senators, it's every six years. But unlike the presidential position, which is set at two terms, the members of Congress have no terms, so they keep their seats as long as they win elections. Now, term limits is something that might actually pass Congress, whereas support from both sides of the aisle, and about 72 to 78 percent of Americans support the idea. But, as I said earlier, what we support doesn't really matter. There are a few arguments against term limits, and in my opinion, I, I think they're actually pretty weak arguments. I'll run through a top five anti-term limits from a uh, Brookings Institute article, and we'll do a little pros and cons right now. One argument is term limits would curtail the choices of the voters for politicians they like. To this argument, I'd say you're completely ignoring the reality of what politicians face, and that is constantly raising money for elections. Eventually, some, not all, are going to make some concessions that goes against their principles, and more importantly, ignores the will of the people. That being said, if there is a particular member of Congress who is doing good work and has a base of supporters, I don't really see them having trouble finding work, whether it's on a committee or another seat in Congress. Numbers 2, 3, and 4 are pretty much the same argument, which is proof that anyone can get paid writing these days except me. 
Anyway, it basically says term limits would reduce experienced lawmakers. Inexperienced lawmakers could write up uh, laws that are filled with loopholes or unintended uh, provisions. Okay, then maybe they shouldn't write up laws they know nothing about. I mean, where the hell's the fire? And, and listen, I understand that no politician is going to be an expert in everything, but they should be an expert in something and focus on that. Focus on the platform that got them voted in. Or what the hell was the point of them running in the first place? This article also makes an accidental case of basically saying we should get rid of elections because God forbid we elect someone with new ideas but doesn't have 30 years of accomplishing nothing in Congress. At the end of the day, politicians are supposed to be just megaphones for the people. They work for us. Last point it says, it will do little to end corruption. It basically makes a case that plays on the fears of people that lobbying is bad. Lobbying isn't bad, it's the incentives that purchase influence that is bad. If you have or had worked in the food industry, for example, there's a group called the National Restaurant Association. They lobby, and they stood up to bad ideas from our politicians with mixed results. And maybe I'm being optimistic, but I, I really would like to believe someone brand new to Congress who just got there, I would like to think the first thing he wouldn't do is immediately try and become corrupt. I think it takes quite a few years before you become comfortable enough to compromise yourself. The biggest thing missing in this argument is once a lobbyist buys a seat in Congress, he owns that seat. But with a constant change, it becomes tougher for lobbyists to buy out another seat in a short amount of time. Now, let me put this argument completely to bed. I'm going to make one simple case for term limits that will defeat all the arguments, okay? I want you to think of a politician that is currently in power that you do not like, okay? When that person goes for re-election, there is historically, just going by history, historically a 90% chance that they will win re-election. 90%. So, are term limits good? That's what I thought. So, what can we do about it? Well, for term limits, you're going to need a constitutional amendment. But Congress isn't going to vote against their own interest. But there is another way to make an amendment through Article V of the Constitution. You can call on a convention which goes around Congress. You just need 38 states to sign on. So for that, and to learn more about Article V of the Constitution, you can go to termlimits.com, represent.us to get rid of the revolving door. You can check out conventionofthestates.com, or conventionofstates.com, rather. Uh, BBA for USA.org. That's for a balanced budget uh, amendment, which is the one to watch right now if you're interested in Article V. But that has nothing to do with term limits. And uh, wolfpack.com to overturn Citizens United. So there's a lot of options for this uh, Article V of the Constitution. And there's others uh, gaining traction as well. Look them up. Support the ones you want. I'm pretty interested in this uh, Article V thing. And maybe we'll talk about that down the line. Of course, should we have to do any of this? No, but here we are. Well, that's all I got for you today. We'll play a clip from Dr. Shiva Ayadore, and uh, we'll return in a couple of weeks, possibly sooner. Even though we're just having fun doing this, I don't like wasting anyone's time. So when I feel like we have an episode of at least decent quality, and it's ready to go, that's when it will come out. It's pretty cool. Our next episode will be all about the Philippines sure to bring joy to their entire country. This was Solving Problems, and start new one, bye. Um, 
Speaking of which, uh, it goes to the heart of what we initially talked about, about the situation in the country. And, and that speaks to um, how, if you were to be elected in the Senate, how would you, um, how, how can the Senate be able to, be, to function in a more cooperative fashion? Because right now- It's a great question, yeah. And they, it's, it's like you can't step over the line to cooperate on much of anything. Um, so, I think it's a great what, question, what, Tony. What, I, what I think it's a great question as a transition to, to policy. Look, mm -hmm. uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, their goal is to retain power. It's Pepsi and Coke. And the entire model here is to, is to create issues that do divide us. And we don't talk about issues that can bring this country together. That's, they, this is uh, architected. I'm not talking about some people in a back room, but this is an implicit orchestration. So, for example, when it comes to health care, the, the, the issues, are you for single-payer or non-single-payer? Are you for Obamacare or not Obamacare? We don't discuss the transpartisan issues that can actually bring this country together. Because health is actually a transpartisan issue. It affects every one of us in this room. Well, I have a solution that can lower the health care costs from $10,000 per worker. Today, we're going to be spending about $3.7 trillion. And by 2020 or 2030, I have to look at the exact date, in that range, we're going to be up to $1 to $3 of our money will be going to healthcare. So when you look at that enormous cost, you know, we have to address that solution. But we don't talk about lowering the cost. We talk about are you for or against Obamacare, for or against single payer. The fundamental issue that can bring us together is if we all realize that a 50 cents hamburger is selling for half a million dollars. What do I mean by that? That there's a collusion between the, the big pharma, big insurance, and big hospitals. And that collusion is owned and modulated by people called group purchasing organizations, GPOs. I don't know if you guys know what those are. Have you ever heard of them? Well, it's probably the, one of the biggest rackets that no one has addressed. They were given safe harbor in the late 80s and again in 2000 for the pharmacy equivalent of them, which controls the supply chain of everything that you see in a hospital and primarily everything you see in a pharmacy. So if you go to a hospital, God forbid, knock on wood, no one has to, and you walk in, the pillowcases, the bed sheets, the stapler on the nurse's desk, everything is owned and controlled by three GPOs, at least 80% of the supply. So in the 70s, they organized to really help um, hospitals get lower costs. But later on, they consolidated and they monopolized, they controlled the, 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 literally the supply chain. So what's happened is they literally are able to give kickbacks, corruption, that was allowed, and that entire process needs to be reversed. I think every American will be for lowering the cost of healthcare. As a part of that, if you look at the entire aspect of healthcare, this is again a transpartisanship issue. Everyone will agree that we got our healthcare. Where do you get your health? Well, in my view, three things. You get your healthcare from actually having a primary care physician. My grandmother was a healer in a local village. In ancient times, traditional times, it was always there was a healer you had a relationship with. They looked at you, they saw you, they spoke to you. Well, a doctor can't even see a patient more than 15 minutes right now, right? So we gotta go back to supporting the patient-doctor relationship. That's called direct primary care, DPC, it's a movement. Venu and others have educated me on this. And that movement is where you pay 50 to $75 for your local physician, and he takes care of 80% of the issues. 80% of the issues can be handled by your primary care physician. We force people to go into big hospitals. Doctors are forced to go and join big hospitals because of the cost of medical education. We'll talk about that. So first thing, we bring down the basic, the basic cost of 50 to 75 bucks. The other 20%, catastrophe, et cetera, 
that can be solved with about 100, 150 bucks where you directly go to reinsurance for catastrophic insurance. So you put the catastrophic insurance plus your direct primary care, we have a great relationship, you add that's around 200 bucks. That's even before I've talked about you know, going after the GPOs. They add a quarter of a trillion to half a trillion dollars in excess to cost. 